This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's always been a passion of mine. In fact, it's really what decided me to become a philosopher. In order to talk about the soul, the first thing we have to talk about, though, is life, what it means to live. It's not by coincidence that the um, ancient Greek word for soul, psyche, and the Latin word for soul, anima, both first meant breath. Okay, so if you want to check to see if a person who's been hit by a car is alive, we check to see if they're breathing, right? So, but there are other signs that things are alive. So how do you know your dog's alive? Well, you know your dog's alive because it's eating out of its dish, it's barking, it's waving its tail, and so forth, right? Um, how do you know your plant's alive? Well, your plant's putting out new leaves, it's growing, it's getting bigger, might put out some flowers, something like this. So we might ask then more generally what it means to live. And I think that you can define a living thing as a being that has the capacity for self-motion. The reason I say capacity for self-motion and not just self-motion is that there's some things that are alive that aren't doing anything. So think about frozen embryos. They're not carrying on any type of life activity, but we know that some of them are alive because if you implant them in a woman, they'll start to develop and grow and so forth. But if you leave them in the deep freeze too long, that isn't going to happen. So when, when, I, when I talk about motion, you, you shouldn't have just a narrow idea of motion, like moving this pencil from here to here. Okay, But motion, take it in a very broad sense. So any kind of activity is, a, is in the broad sense of motion. So like seeing is a motion, nutrition is a motion, and so forth. All right, now, how do we then first realize that there's such a thing as the soul? Well, there are two ways of knowing there's such a thing as a soul. So one is through your own internal experience of yourself. How do you experience yourself? Do you experience yourself as simply being a three-dimensional object occupying space? Well, that's not how I experience myself. I experience myself as having feelings, thoughts, and even making decisions about how I move my body. I think I have a personality. I think I have character, okay? So there must be something about me in addition to being a body. And that's all the soul is in the first instance. Whatever it is about me that allows me to have the feelings, thoughts, and so forth, and not just be a body. The other way of knowing that there's such a thing as a soul is simply by looking at other living things and contrasting them with dead things. So I, I have an aversion to squirrels, so oftentimes I use squirrels as examples of dead things. Okay, So the living squirrel is digging holes in your backyard and hiding nuts and running up trees and so forth. Okay, It gets hit by the truck, stops doing those things. Well, obviously there's a difference between the living squirrel and the dead squirrel, and that needs an explanation. And in the first instance, that's all the soul is. The soul is the life principle. It's the cause of the life activities. It's the cause that explains why the squirrel was running around before it got hit by the truck. Okay? So this is a very, very vague notion, but it's very certain. Aristotle puts it bluntly. He says, not all bodies are alive. Well, there must be something that accounts for the fact that some bodies are living bodies. Okay, and that is all the soul is in the first instance. Now, of course, he's going to go on from there and say a whole lot more about the soul. Um, but first, I'd just like to point out a, a couple of contrasts with common religious notions of the soul. So most religions would probably not say that a plant has a soul, right? But for Aristotle, if your plant is putting out leaves or flowers or so forth, then it's got to have a soul. It's got to have a, a life principle. Another thing that's common in religion is the idea that souls are spiritual entities. Now, Aristotle makes no such assumption in the beginning of his um, treatise on the soul. So that's a question for him. Does a plant soul survive the death of a plant? Does a human soul survive the death of a human being? But he doesn't, he doesn't assume that from the get-go. Now, an, another thinker um, who talks about the soul or talks about mind um, who would be a point of contrast with Aristotle is Rene Descartes, who lived in the 17th century. So this was the age of science. He was actually a contemporary of Galileo. So uh, Descartes died in 1650, and Galileo died in 1642. 
So Descartes has the feeling that philosophy has become stagnant. And so he's going to put philosophy back on track. So he goes in his room, he blows out the candle, and he sits there and he says to himself, anything I know through my senses, I consider to be uncertain and unreliable. And then the second thing he said was, what I consider to be certain are my clear and distinct ideas. Now, I think both of those are mistakes, but we're not going to go on that tangent, okay? So what were his clear and distinct ideas? Well, not necessarily in order. One of his clear and distinct ideas was supreme substance, also known as God. Another one of his clear and distinct ideas was um, thinking substance, also known as mind. So we all know about Descartes' cogito, right? I think, therefore I am. Uh, and then ultimately he decides that there's another type of substance he calls extended substance, also known as the body. So what does he do with these ideas when it comes to talking about living things? Well, he'll make three statements about living things which are of interest to us. So the first thing he'll say is that plants and animals are basically machines with smaller parts. Okay, so they're basically machines with smaller parts. So if you think about machines in his day, maybe a cannon. Okay, so a cannon has big parts that you can see. Whereas I'm sure if you've ever eaten chicken, sometimes you find those little nerves in the chicken, right? So there's some little itty bitty parts in the, in the chicken. So that's basically what Descartes thinking. Plants, plants and animals, they're just machines that have really small parts compared to most machines. Okay. Another thing that Descartes well known for is the idea that human beings are made up out of two separate substances, mind and body. Okay, so this is usually called dualism. We'll talk about it a little bit at the end. And then the last thing that he says is that the soul is a spiritual thing, which kind of fits with the idea that plants and animals are machines. Because, right, machines don't have souls. Plants and animals are machines. Therefore, plants and animals don't have souls. So the only kind of soul left standing is going to be the human soul. And the human soul for Descartes is, is going to be a spiritual thing. Okay, I think there's some influence in religion. There's probably some arguments too. All right, so looking at these um, claims that Descartes makes as far as plants and animals basically just being machines. So he'll say this. He'll say, it's no more natural for a clock to, t uh, excuse me, it's no more natural for, let me, I don't want to do it backwards. It's no more natural for an apple tree to produce apples than for a clock to tell time. Okay, so it's equally natural for an apple tree to produce apples and for a clock to tell time. But is that true? For a clock to tell time, you have to set it to the right time. The clock is completely indifferent to telling the wrong time. In fact, the clock is completely different to, indifferent to telling the time at all. If you don't put batteries in or plug it in, the clock, it, it, makes, no it makes no difference to the clock, right? But the apple tree, the apple tree has a natural tendency to produce apples, okay? And it sometimes will do things like lose leaves to make sure that it produces fruit. If you know anything about plants, certain plants will, will cause leaves to fall off because it's focused on producing a fruit so that uh, the generation, the next generation can, can come into existence, okay? Um, even like any machine you think about, we have to do something to make that machine do what we made it to do, like a toaster. If you don't put the bread in the toaster, it's not going to produce toast, right? Okay. Whereas again, the apple tree is, is striving, not consciously, but it's striving to produce those apples on its own. So again, that's the characteristic thing of a living thing, that it has this capacity for self-motion. It moves on its own in different ways. The other thing that Descartes is that Living things, with the exception of reprodu reproduction, do what they do for their own benefit. So when the plant is growing, it's growing to a size that's good for it, so it can get more light and so forth. When, it, when the dog is eating from a dish, it's, it's nourishing itself, it's trying to keep itself alive. But obviously machines work for us. Now, I'm going to look a little bit more at some of the uh, most fundamental life activities. So these are activities that Aquinas would call the vegetative activities, because even vegetables or plants can perform these activities. But these are bas basic life activities that you find in any living thing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to contrast them with what machines do. So one life activity is nutrition. And we can compare that to a machine using fuel or using energy. So in both cases, the food and the fuel powers 
the organism and the machine respectively. But there's something that happens with some of the food in the case of the organism that doesn't happen in the case of the machine. The case of the organism, some of the food is transformed by the organism into itself. The machine does not make new parts of itself out of the fuel or out of the energy source. Another life activity is growth. And it's hard to find an exact counterpart as far as a machine is concerned, but we can talk about enlarging machines in different ways. So you could make the memory of your computer bigger by adding a, a chip, a memory chip. You might have like a stereo system and add a component to it, like a CD player before it was invented and it was invented, now you add it. Okay. So I think it's really obvious though, the difference between what the living thing is doing it's transforming material internally and adding to itself within. Whereas in the case of the machine, we're taking things from the outside, we're putting it on top or we're putting them inside. But the, the machine in no matter, shape or form participates in it's getting bigger. And also the other thing too is how big the machine gets is gonna depend on us. Whereas organisms, the rate of growth is determined by them. Now, of course it is, in part dependent on outside factors. I mean, we know if you have twins and one is malnourished and the other one isn't, that the malnourished twin will not grow to her full height, okay? But there is a full height for her to grow to, which is, which is intrinsic to her. All right, we can also then compare the life activity of reproduction with, um, on the part of the machine, we could talk about copying or we could talk about replication. So the big difference between those two um, processes is in the case of reproduction, especially it's especially obvious in the case of sexual reproduction, the new organism completes itself. The new organism completes itself. Okay? Case of the machine, you're gonna have like a photocopy machine, you have an original and then it's copied by the machine and makes another copy, okay? So you have one thing making another thing. This new copy is in no way responsible for its existence. But think about it, I mean, it's always obvious to relate to humans. I mean, when you were developing in your mother's womb, it wasn't like your mother decided, oh, let's put arms on the baby today, or let's put eyes on, right? You develop those yourself. And that's a huge difference between what we see uh, in machines. And then last, it's not a life activity that only a living thing can die. So we can compare death to breakdown. So, Breakdown, in principle, it might be expensive, but in, it can always be repaired, okay? There's always some way of fixing machines, in principle. In the case of death, if the organism is really dead, short of a miracle, it's never gonna live again, okay? One of my students told me that awake is called awake because it's a period during which the person might wake up. <laughs> yeah, and they're actually, we know that there have been people who've been buried alive because on the the, the, the coffin inside, you could see fingernail marks scratching, trying to get out. Anyway, once you're dead, you're really dead. <laughs> Whereas a machine, you can, you can always do something about. Okay, now people with scientific mindset often reject the notion of the soul because you can't observe it. Okay, so obviously science is into observing things and so forth. Well, you can't observe a soul, so they, they don't like this idea. So I'm gonna consider some further evidence for positing that there is such a thing as a soul. All right, so it's interesting to note that the word organism comes from the Greek word organon, which means tool. So an organism is basically a being equipped with tools. So even the simplest organism has a number of organs, like it's gonna have DNA, it's gonna have ribosomes, it's gonna have a cell membrane and so forth. So there's a kind of tension between being one and being many, okay? And what we wanna do is we wanna compare the unity and multiplicity in a living thing to the unity and the multiplicity um, in a machine. So we're gonna compare the relation of whole to parts in the organism to the relationship of whole to parts in the machine. So there are a number of points of comparison. The first point of comparison is death versus breakdown. So there are a couple really important things to notice about the whole part relationship. Uh, when the whole organism dies, in a very short time, the parts lose their identity as parts. Okay? So we know if you, if you take those parts quickly and you put them on ice and you transplant them, we know that that works, right? I hope you signed your driver's license. Uh, 
Okay, but the the tendency of the of the organism's parts are to decay, right? In a machine, you do not see this type of, of, of change. When the machine's broken, it's not like the other parts precipitously start to decay. Okay, so that's one important point. The other point is, is that you in the case of the squirrel, you have one living squirrel. You have one being. When it gets hit by that truck in a short period of time, it turns into a bunch of chemicals. So you go from being one being to being then a bunch of other things. In the case of the machine, what you have when the machine breaks is first you had a collection of parts, and now one or more parts is broken. Afterwards, you have a collection of parts okay, with one or more broken parts. So you have a collection before, you have a collection afterwards. You didn't really have one thing before. You had a bunch of parts assembled together. A machine has what we call the u a unity of purpose. Okay? So we call this a toaster because we've assembled these pieces so that we can use it to heat our bread. Okay? So it doesn't the, the parts of the toaster have no inherent relationship one to the other. It's completely arbitrary and dependent on us. So think about the toaster. You could take the cord out of the toaster and you could, you could install it in a vacuum. Cord could care less, right? But you can't randomly take pieces of living things off and just put them and plug them in. So there's a very, very big difference here, okay? All right. Another um, point of comparison, moving on from death versus breakdown, another way that you can compare, compare living things um, and machines is you can say in the case of a machine, all machines, that they're simply the sum of their parts. And you can say in the case of organisms, at least as to certain activities, maybe not all activities, but as to certain activities, that they're more than the sum of their parts. What do I mean by saying that a thing is the sum of its parts? A thing is the sum of its parts when its activities can be fully explained by its parts and their interactions. Okay, so a thing is the sum of its parts when its activities can be fully explained through its parts and their interactions. So a machine that we all have some knowledge of would be the automobile, okay? So assuming that there's fuel in the automobile, there are two basic types of reasons why the automobile has stopped moving forwards and backwards. One is a part or parts are broken or missing. That's one type of explanation or one reason that maybe the car is not working. The other reason is the parts are not connected properly. Think about the sound of music, how the Nazis were going to chase the von Trapp family, and what did the nuns do? They disconnected wires, right? So you have to have the parts, but you also have to have the parts connected properly or interacting properly. And if you know what those parts are and how they are to be connected and interact, then you fully understand the machine. There's no mystery about the machine. It's fully understood through its parts and how those parts interact. But there's some mysterious things about organisms. That there are certain activities you can't fully explain by the parts and the interact the, the body's parts and the way the body's parts are interacting. So probably the, the best exa um, example is emotion. Okay? Imagine that you come upon a person crying and you ask the person, what is the matter? And she starts to explain to you her brain chemistry. <laughs> what the neurotransmitters are doing and so forth. You wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be satisfied, right? You're looking for an answer like, I lost my dog or something like this, okay? So what does this show? Well, it shows that you can't fully understand emotion in terms of body parts and how those body parts are interacting. Emotion is a, generally about something, okay? Whereas bodily activities just are. They're not about something, okay? So another type of life activity that you can't fully explain in terms of the body's parts and the interaction is sense perception, okay? Even Richard Dawkins admits that science has not entirely killed the soul because science can't explain consciousness, okay? So let's think about sense perceptions. Seeing versus what a camera does. Hearing versus what a tape recorder does, okay? So when you hear, and if the, the tape recorder here, they're registering sound waves, right? Okay. But what's the difference between the tape recorder and you hearing? Now, my students will sometimes say, well, we understand. But if I spoke 
a language you didn't understand that was foreign to you, you wouldn't understand, but you would be aware of sounds. That is what it means to hear. It's to be aware of sounds. Tape recorder is not aware of anything. Okay, it's registering those sounds, but it doesn't have any awareness. Now, if you think about the body parts that make up like the visual system and so forth, and the optic nerve and the part of the brain and so forth, none of those parts have awareness. None of the proteins and so forth that make up the visual system have the property of awareness. And yet in the living thing, those parts which lack awareness somehow allow the living thing to be aware of, of color. So that there needs to be an explanation for that. Okay? There needs to be an explanation for why things that don't have a property all of a sudden are giving rise to a certain property. It's like adding zero to zero to zero. You're not going to get one all of a sudden. Now, that being said, some people will claim that if you have enough physical parts interacting in a certain way, awareness will simply emerge. Okay? So they'll talk about emergent properties. And they'll point to things like surface tension which a single water molecule does not have, but which a bunch of water molecules together have. Okay. However, however, basically the, the surface tension, that property surface tension, is partially contained in each of the molecules. Okay. So let me explain a little bit more. There are certain properties that I term collective properties. They're not truly emergent properties. So say, for example, if you're a single person, can you surround another person? You cannot, okay? But with other people, you could surround a person, correct? Why is that? It's because you can partially surround that person, okay? So similarly, if you have an object that's very, very heavy, you might not be able to pick it up, but maybe with a friend you can pick it up, okay? Why are you able to do that? Is that an immersion property? No, that's a collective property. It's an additive property. Both of you are capable of bearing a certain amount of weight, okay? So that's basically what is happening with surface tension. It's not something new that you're getting. But the water molecules, what, you, what water molecules are, are dipoles. So they have slight charges on them. And so those charges, like join hands, so to speak, and that's what creates the surface tension. You're not really getting anything new. You're not getting something that's not already contained in the parts. However, when you're talking about sense perception, you're getting something that's really new. And another way of seeing that um, is thinking about the best way to explain sight to a blind person. So you have two options. One is simply to try to explain it in terms of physiology, going into all the detail about the optic nerve and the part of the brain and so forth. Okay, that would be one approach. Another approach would be this way. You could say to the blind person, well, you know what hearing is, uh, you know what it means, that you're aware of sounds, right? And you know you're also aware of flavors, you know what the sense of taste is, okay? So there's another type of awareness. So just like sounds are different from flavors, where there's another thing you could be aware of, but you're not, which is called color. And that's what seeing is, okay? So I think that would make a whole lot more sense to the blind person to speak in terms of the subjective experience of awareness than speaking purely in terms of physiology. For the blind person, the physiological explanation could be an explanation of digestion, right? But if you leave out awareness, you've left out what's really essential um, to what it means to see. Okay, yet another point of comparison between um, machines and organisms is that organisms heal themselves. Okay. Now, we know that not every part of organisms can heal themselves. We know, especially with spinal cord injuries, that doesn't tend to heal themselves. But there is a tendency of old organisms to, to, to heal themselves, at least certain parts or to a certain extent. There is actually an amazing case of a person who was born with 3% of a normal brain and eventually grew to 85%. Um, so that's pretty outstanding. But I'm sure all of us have skinned our knee and we've seen the scab form and the new skin form and so forth. Okay. So if you think about machines, machines, we have to repair them. And even machines that have like self-repair features ultimately have to be repaired. So a friend of mine worked in Massachusetts in the industry that makes these circuit boards, and he was explaining how automatic tellers work. And so he says they're basically two circuit boards and they're identical. So when the client interacts with the, with the automatic teller, 
The first circuit board undergoes a self-check to make sure that everything is working properly. And if it's not, it sends a signal to the second circuit board, and then the second circuit board will take over the functions. It's, it's identical, basically. What happens, though, when the second circuit board goes bad? Well, we have to come in and we have to fix it. Whereas living things, all of them, again, not every single part can be repaired, but they, they naturally strive to retain their unity. And then the other thing, in addition, is that they resist potential attacks to their integrity from foreign invaders. So think about germs. It's most obvious in the case of humans what happens when germs get in us. Well, we cough, we sneeze, we vomit. I won't mention some of the other things we do to get the foreign invaders out, right? Um, allergies. Believe it or not, there's certain allergens that are actually not toxic, but for some reason, certain people's bodies identify them as, as harmful. And in, in that case, the, the cure is worse than the disease. The allergens actually wouldn't hurt, but it just illustrates the body has a very strong tendency to want to keep itself together and anything that's not itself away. And this is even actually then counterproductive if you think of grafts. So if you think of a kidney graft, you think of a skin graft for a burn victim, we know that we have to depress the immune system because the natural tendency of the body is to, is to reject those grafts, even though they would be beneficial. Uh, and this is in striking contrast with machines. Machines could care less if there's anything foreign in them. Now, obviously, if you jam moving parts, you're going you're gonna to break the machine, right? I remember when I used to be a student assistant, I would make photocopies for hours on end. And the, the photocopy machine used to get really, really hot. And I used to say to myself, you know, I see some heads nodding. Uh, <laughs> I could bring a TV dinner and I could put it in the machine. And then when I'm done, I would have a dinner already hot and ready, <laughs> right? The machine couldn't care less. There were large spaces in the machine that didn't have the moving parts, right? Machine couldn't care less, okay? And so we see all these radical differences between machines and organisms, okay? And they need an explanation. We need an explanation for why the parts of an organism get their identity from the whole organism. Whereas in the case of the machine, the machine gets its identity from the parts we put together, okay? We need an explanation for these emergent properties like emotion, like sense perception that can't be reduced to the physical parts. And so there is a reason to posit such a thing um, as a soul. Now, some people who are somewhat soul friendly, they're like, okay, you know, we don't want to do away with the notion of the soul. They basically have this idea. They'll say that the soul is the totality of the interaction of the living thing's parts over time. So basically, it's kind of like a symphony played by the body parts over time. Okay. Now, the problem with the symphony is it's not really one thing. I mean, the, the, the piece of music you can consider one, but the members of the symphony are separate individuals or separate entities. And so that account of the soul cannot explain the unity of the living thing. So, well, what then does Aristotle and Aquinas think the soul is? Well, here we need to try to understand the difficult notion of substantial form and substantial change. In what follows, I'll do my best to try to explain these notions, but don't be surprised if they don't make immediate sense to you. I remember when I was a sophomore at Thomas Aquinas College, I thought these were quite puzzling notions. However, if you, if you hear them a few times and you think about what the alternatives are, it, it, starts to, it starts to make sense. All right. Substance and accident is a very important distinction in philosophy. So if you're not familiar with philosophy, when you hear the word substance, you might think of a chemical substance like formaldehyde, or you might think of the table of elements, right? Um, and when you hear accident, you think fender bender in the parking lot, some, something of that sort. Well, the substance accident distinction is, is quite other. And so what is a substance? It's something that exists of itself, and an accident is something that exists in another as in a subject. Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat this in a different way. So a substance is something that exists of itself, whereas an accident is something that exists in another as in a subject. So I'm a substance, okay? I exist of myself. And I have accidents, okay? Accident is basically like characteristic. The word accident comes from the Latin word achito, which means to happen to. So it so happens I'm 5'4", it so happens I have white skin, it so happens that 
I don't know, I have a certain shaped head, that sort of thing. Those all, all those things are characteristics, but they're called accidents um, in philosophy. Um, so I'm a substance, and you might say, well, you don't exist of yourself, of yourself because you depend on air. Well, okay, it's true, I depend on air, but the different things that are in air, the oxygen and so forth, sub, that's a substance, and I'm a different substance. I might depend on the air, but I'm a separate substance. I have my own existence. I'm not an attribute of air. I'm not an accident of air, okay? So I have my existence, I have different accidents, I have different characteristics and so forth. Um, just like a, a detail is that they'll define accident as something that exists in another as in a, in a subject. Because if I put this pencil in my hand, this pencil exists in my hand, but not as in a subject. It exists in my hand as in a place, okay? So the word in has a lot of meanings. So when we're talking about accidents, we're talking about existing in a thing as in a subject. So the temperature of my hand is an accident, the shape of my hand is an accident, and so forth. All right. Now, the substance that you know first and best is yourself. You're aware of yourself being one thing that has various accidents or attributes or characteristics. Okay. So, I mean, you can only know that for yourself. You know, Bertrand Russell will tell you, you, you that you're a pile of events, okay? And some chemists will tell you that you're a bag of chemical reactions. Only you can know how you experience yourself. But I experience myself as one Marie George who has different attributes, all right? When we, and then from there, the other things we're going to know as substances is I know that you're a substance too. Because I see that you're like me, you act like me, and so forth. You see, you hear, you have reactions, you ask questions. Okay, so I know other people are, are humans. And then I know that dogs and cats are substances. Uh, I know that dogs and cats are substances. Okay, they see, they hear, they have a unified way of behaving. They're, they don't just behave erratically, randomly. They're, they're one thing. Okay, plants, the unity of plants is a little bit more hidden. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what's one plant or, or many plants. So I don't know if you ever heard of, there's this um, plant or plants called pando. Pando comes from the Latin word, which means to spread. So th this plant or plants covers 100 acres, and they're basically 40,000 trunks. But the thing is, is they all have the same DNA, and they're united by their roots underground. Okay? But that being said, sometimes we know we have one plant. Okay, so for example, a branch falls off my Christmas cactus and I pick it up and I put it in soil and it roots and that, at least at first, it's one plant. Okay, as we go further and further down to, to lower kinds of natural things, it's not easy to know what a substance is. Okay, so is oxygen a substance? Um, I think so, but I'm not sure. Is water a substance? I think think so, but I just read an article by another philosopher that makes me think that I should think again. Uh, so it's very, very hard in the, the case of the very simple things to know what a substance is, as opposed to like a collection of substances. So is water two different things, or is it really one thing? Is it really one substance? Okay. In the case of the machine, you don't have a substance. You have a collection of substances. Okay. And that's really obvious when you have different parts, like plastic parts and metal parts and so forth. But even if you have a machine made out of one type of material, well, that material is, is different molecules that are continuous to each other, basically glued together and so forth. It's not one thing. It's a collection of molecules, even if it's made out of one material. All right. So when I'm, when I'm teaching a, a class, I usually try to introduce the notion of substantial form um, by a, a simpler example. And I usually just hold up a piece of blackboard chalk and I ask a student, how many things do I have in my hand? And they'll say one, okay? And then I'll ask the student, well, don't I have a cylinder in my hand? The student's like, yeah. Well, don't I have calcium carbonate in my hand? Yeah. One, two, can't you count, you know? So, but we know, we know that that's one thing, right? So that's the beauty of the relationship of form and matter. Form is not matter. You could have a cylinder made out of wood, just as well as out of calcium carbonate. You could have calcium carbonate in the form of a marble and not in the form of a cylinder, okay? They're not the same thing, but together they make up one thing, okay? And this is very, very helpful for understanding the nature of the soul, okay? All right, now the notion of substantial form is arrived at by Aristotle 
is arrived at by Aristotle by analyzing different types of changes. Okay, so this is this is kind of hard to understand. So he's going to start with accidental changes. So in the case of, of me either getting a tan or getting a pot belly, God forbid, um, I, those would be accidental changes. Okay. So the substance that's Marie George remains, and I then gain this additional characteristic, either a different color or a different shape. Okay. So that's just an accidental change. When I die, however, I'm going to turn into a bunch of chemicals. I'm not going to be anymore. That's a substantial change. Okay. I'm going to change from the substance that I am now into these other substances. Okay. So Aristotle then will draw a parallel between accidental change and substantial change. And you'll see in the case of accidental change, you have an underlying subject, a substance, okay, that loses one form, say that I lose the form of a flat stomach and I gain the form of a pot belly. Okay? But there's a subject that underlies that change, namely me, the substance. Okay? Now think about substantial change. Think about that squirrel that's now dead in a bunch of chemicals. Okay, does those do those chemicals just magically appear where the squirrel was before? No, there's got to be something that accounts for continuity in substantial change. Okay, and this thing that accounts for continuity in substantial change, the underlying subject of substantial change, is what Aristotle calls prime matter. Okay. Prime matter is the capacity a substance has to lose the substantial form it has and gain a new substantial form and thereby turn into something completely different. Okay. So yeah, so again, prime matter is this underlying subject. It's the ability I have to turn into a bunch of chemicals. Or again, I'm not sure oxygen is a substance. Let's just say for the sake of the argument, oxygen is a, sub is a substance. Well, it has a substantial form that makes it to be oxygen rather than nitrogen or something else. It makes it to be one substance of a certain kind. But it's, and oxygen be, can be transformed into other um, substances through nuclear reactions. Okay? But there has to be something underlying so that when oxygen is changed into this other substance, it's not just magic. There's got to be an underlying subject. And that's what prime matter is. Okay? So a plant, a worm, a cat, and maybe oxygen and nitrogen, they each have a substantial form that make them to be the one individual being of a certain kind that they are. And they have prime matter, which is the capacity to be changed into other substances. So why talk about living things having a, a specific kind of substantial form, namely the soul? So you don't say that a rock has a soul, you don't say that non-living things have a soul, okay, machines and so forth. Well, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that living things manifest properties that you don't see in non-living things. Things like consciousness, things like sense perception, things like the ability to transform material into themselves and so forth. And this needs an explanation. Um, and you don't need that type of explanation in the case of a rock or in the case of a machine because they're not capable of these types of activities. In other words, we don't think that the the fact that when you drop a dog, it falls downwards is a reason to posit that the dog has a soul, right? Any heavy body is going to fall downwards. It doesn't need a soul to do that. The reason to posit that the dog has a soul is that it's capable of smelling. And smelling is an awareness of color, uh, excuse me, awareness of odors. And uh, this can't be explained simply through the olfactory nerves and the part of the brain that processes olfactory input. All right, so a couple of um, points to repeat about substantial form and prime matter, because they are really difficult concepts. Substantial form is not your shape, okay? The shape I have is not my substantial form. I could lose an arm, and I would still have the substantial form of, of, human, of being a human being. I would have a human soul, okay? I could change shape. I could gain weight, lose weight. That's not, my, my physical shape is not my substantial form, okay? Substantial form is not something that you can observe. It's something that you reason to, okay? It's got, there's got to be something that explains why things exist as certain kinds, 
And then there has to be something that explains why things that exist of certain kinds can change in things of, into things of other kinds. Okay, and that's prime matter. The other um, point that I'd like to um, note is that the substantial form explains the um, being of the whole as a whole, and also the being of, of all the parts. Again, a dog's eye, apart from the dog, is, is going to turn into chemicals quickly. Okay, so the soul explains the whole and the existence of the parts, but it also explains then the activities of the dog. So the whole, this dog's soul makes the dog to be a dog, a living dog, but it also explains why the dog does do doggy things, why it sniffs, why it digs, why it barks, and so forth. Because there's a principle in philosophy, action follows being, okay? So as you are, so you act, but the soul makes you to be a living thing, and so ultimately the soul is what accounts for the different activities that living things perform. Now, I'm, I'm sure that you've noticed that I haven't really been talking that much about the human soul. I've been just talking about the soul in general, right? So just a few words about the human soul. Well, obviously, in, in the case of the dog, it senses, it has emotions and so forth. So we posit it has a soul. Well, we too, we sense, we have emotions. So we have to have a soul too, but we have a different kind of soul than animals do because we, we have two life activities that you can't find in animals, namely, we have the capacity to think abstractly, and we have the ability to freely choose. So our life principle, our soul, our substantial form is different from that of other um, animals. Um, but in both cases, in the case of the dog soul, in the case of the human soul, they're not separate from the living body. Okay? The dog soul makes the dog to be a dog, and a human soul makes the human being to be a human being, a living human being. Okay? So this is in contrast with Descartes, because again, Descartes, in the case of humans, wants to make us into two separate things, okay, which causes a lot of problems, because if you have the soul, which he sometimes completes with mind, okay, but if your soul is here and body is here, how are you going to get those two things together, right? But if you understand the soul is a substantial form, it's not separate from the body. It's what makes the body to be a living body of a certain kind. Now, Another difference, though, with, uh, with an animal soul versus a human soul is that the human soul is separable, okay? So while you're alive, your soul is not separate from your body. But when you die, there's reasons, there are arguments you can give that a human soul does continue in existence after death. But that's basically a topic for another lecture, so I shall end here. Thank you. Okay, I just want to make sure I understood you correctly. So, it, it, say that you had a constructor robot that then can construct another robot. But my, my point is, is this, the second robot in no way participated in its completion, right? And that's what the radical difference is. Again, in living things, the new organism, yeah, you need, you need parents, you need the sperm and egg to come together. But once they get, come together, that new organism isn't being constructed by the, either of the parents. So in the examples you're giving, you're always talking about one thing, constructing another thing. This, the, this new thing doesn't construct itself in any manner, shape, or form. And then you had another question, um, which I forgot now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you I had a second question. Sort of the division between 
what's the division between sort of all the individual components having a soul and them collectively forming the soul in, in itself? Well, as long as my as long as my cells are in my body, they they exist under the same soul. They don't have separate souls. But if you take a cell out of my body and you plate it and you give it nutrients and so forth, in that case, it must have some type of soul. But it doesn't have a human soul, okay? So it will have some type of vegetative soul. It's, it's able to grow. It can nourish itself from the media and so forth. But it's not. It doesn't have sense perception. Doesn't have emotion, much less the capacity for abstract thought. So there's some kind of soul that's there, but it's like a vegetable type soul, a plant soul. Sure. Yes. Uh, I have a question about emerging properties. Uh, you mentioned that the consciousness is, a, is an emerging property because any part of the brain, either uh, cells, doesn't have a consciousness, doesn't have awareness, but when you put them all together, the, this property emerges. How is it different from, like, none of the parts of the car can go 100 miles per hour, can write, but when we put them together, there's an emergence of property of the right. Sure, it's different this way. I actually skipped that part of my paper. Thanks for asking the question. So if you think about a bicycle, can any part of a bicycle transport a person? No, okay. But together, the parts can transport a person, though why? It's because each part of a bicycle can bear weight and it can move. So you're not getting something different in kind. You're just getting motion and bearing weight, okay? Or to give another example, an inkjet printer, okay? You just take one part of an inkjet printer, it's not going to do anything. But one part pushes another part that ultimately pushes the ink onto the paper. So this is just a collective property. It's again, it's like two people couldn't, or one person couldn't pick something up, but if you put two of them together, they can pick something up. But you're not getting something new in kind. There's weight bearing in the puddle, and there's weight bearing in the chain, and motion, and the capacity for motion in both those things. And that's what you get. There's, it's simply a sum. It's not something different in kind. Don't you view the emotion as a complex interaction between the cells that uh, on its own don't have a conscious or emotion, but when interacting, uh, like it's, it's very complex, etc. but still it's, it's why isn't a collective property when you have a lot of cells and when they interact with each other, they emerge this emotion or awareness. But they only that it only emerges in a, in a living thing. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason you have to talk about a soul. Without the soul unifying and giving those, pro those, those things which of themselves don't have the capacity to produce things like emotion, without the soul, you wouldn't get emotion. Um, what is your motivation to be so involved in, in these discussions, in this examination? Is there something outside of the simple will to know that is informing your... Well, I would say it's mainly a desire to know. Yeah, I've always been a speculative philosopher who just likes to think about things. But ultimately, it cashes out in, in important ways. Like, so if human beings don't have a soul, and you, you that, and that's the whole question about the soul being separable. Well, if we have a separable soul, now that opens up new horizons. I gave a talk on neuroscience and the human soul, and a woman in the audience had never you know, con contemplated the thought that she had a soul. And she was totally blown away. And she was then asking questions that were like, you know, more religion-based when she realized, oh, I, I do have a soul. <laughs> so I think that I think that defending the notion of the soul is is important from the point of view of a science and religion type dialogue. Yeah, so th that's a, an excellent question. The problem is, is that the, the we, we don't have special words to talk about animals. And so if the animal does something like what we do, we just use the word that we do, okay? So you have to investigate more what does it really mean for a human being to choose. And so strictly speaking, choice involves the application of some type of, of principle, okay? And so the dog just has a preference, okay? The dog just goes by the preference. You're absolutely right, animals have preferences. But the dog isn't engaging in any type of thought process. It just goes for what happens to taste good for it, okay? Whereas when we make a choice, it's like you chose to come to this lecture. So you weighed, what are my other responsibilities? What, are, you know, what homework do I need to do and so forth? And so you have principles to weigh you know, the value of coming to a lecture about the soul versus many other things you can be doing. And that's necessary in order to make a choice. 
But the example I always like is Rosa Parks, okay? Rosa Parks, she is very indignant when people tell her that she sat down on that bus because she was tired. She said, yeah, I was tired of being deprived of my right as a citizen to sit on, a public, on public transportation. So she's acting on principle. Whereas an animal that's tired and jumps up on the sofa or lies down in front of the fireplace is not doing that on principle. It's simply doing it based on its, its sense experience. So, yeah. Does that make sense? But we, 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 don't, we have so few words that it, you don't know, we don't know what to say. <laughs> yes? Like, does the soul emerge when, at birth or like when consciousness and we're aware of our consciousness? Well, I mean, again, you have to, to realize that if you have a capacity, you might not be using it. So, I mean, if you think about children, I have different arguments with parents, but I don't think that a child that's, that's newborn, I don't think it's reasoning, okay? And the reason I don't think it's reasoning is that it has to acquire experience first, okay? The child doesn't even see properly. So it has a sense of touch and so forth, and it sees a little bit fuzzy and it hears a little bit. But... Uh, the, an Aristotelian is going to maintain, if you're going to form concepts, you need to have experience, and you have to build up a certain amount of experience in order to perform appropriate concepts. But that doesn't mean that the newborn doesn't have the capacity to reason. And certainly, uh, a baby that's about to be born, if it's not allowed to be born, that's nine months, it certainly has the capacity to reason. You know, But, but, but again, there's debate about when the rational soul is present. Yes? So does a baby have free will when it's born? Absolutely, sure. But, well, okay, but it, as I was just saying, it has the capacity to reason. And as Aquinas will picturesquely call the free will, he calls it the rational appetite. It's the desires and feelings we can have because we can reason, okay? So it's there, but it's going to be inactive because in order for you to have free will, you have to have abstract principles. In order to have abstract principles, you have to have been actually thinking, which means that you've acquired the ex sufficient experience to form those, those concepts. So it's there, it's just inactive. Does that make sense? Let's take one more question if there's anything else. Yes. What's your attitude towards the scientific, like some of the attempts to quantify the hard problem of consciousness? Like for example, the integrated information theory I'm not sure if you have heard of that one, but there is like a variety of them. Some there's another one called multiple draft theory. Yeah, I think they're all barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. Basically, I mean, it, I mean, it depends how they're presenting it. If they're presenting that as the soul, that that's not something that's going to account for the unity of living things. Okay. So the bottom line is you need to, something that's going to account for the unity of living things. So that's why I was saying like the symphony idea that somehow. Yeah. It's similar to that. I mean, I don't know the details of your it has theory. Yeah, it has different flavors, and it basically comes down to the ancient view that Aristotle talks about. He didn't know about these flavors, but he just said certain ancients thought that the soul was a kind of harmony of the body parts. You had a certain mixture, a certain harmony, and that that's what it meant to be alive. But a harmony of separate parts ultimately doesn't give you one being, and that's where. An Aristotelian, at least an Aristotelian Thomas, will keep pushing you to your experience of yourself. Do you experience yourself as one thing, or do you experience yourself as a collection of, of molecules? Okay. So ultimately, it's, it's the same, just in dressed up more fancy language and more complicated and so forth, but it makes the, it makes the soul simply to be a, a characteristic of a, of a body or bodies.